0: Well, I'm going to jump right into the text here this morning in Revelation chapter 13. This is the last study we'll have on Revelation chapter 13. Next time I teach, I'll be in chapter 14. And um, someone told me this morning, they said, well, one year ago, you were in Revelation chapter (laughs) 9. Really? Really? I said, said, how much do you want to bet when the Lord returns, I'll I'll be in Revelation 19? Perfect timing. (laughs) Don't criticize. Don't be a hater. Um, but we wanted to detail last, uh, picking up on some of the, the the points we didn't cover within the text itself. Uh, I encourage you to go back and listen to those. In fact, we just edited the uh, service from last week, week. We meaning me because this entire week I fell in love with the sunshine. So again, please just. <laughs> I didn't do any uh, of my responsibilities. But the um, but I just put it up online. And it should be edited online if you want to listen to last week's study. And I I say that because in order to understand here this morning, uh, and if you have questions or wondering how I built upon that, uh, you feel like you're jumping into the middle of an argument, because you are. (laughs) And so I'm going to do my best to try to speed you up to date. Uh, But that study is available online for those that would be interested. In Revelation chapter 13, it's a part one study. This would be part two. And then, like I said, next time we'll be in chapter 14. But in Revelation chapter 13, I might as well jump back to verse 15 and read for the next four verses. Revelation chapter 13, verse 15, and it was allowed to give breath, speaking of the beast or the false prophet, Antichrist to put it simply, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the number of the beast or the number of its name. And this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Lord, I don't have the ability to adequately address all the concerns, fears, worries, questions in this text in people's lives. I'm not the Almighty, (laughs) and yet I rejoice because you said in your word, call no man the teacher except for the Christ. And so, Lord, even though I open my mouth, we depend upon the impartation of your person, your spirit, to speak your truth to the hearts that want to hear. I pray, God, for any that don't want to hear Lord. I pray that you would still meet them, but I particularly pray for those that do want to hear. And I ask, God, that you give clarity to my speak. I pray that we could avoid confusion. I ask, God, the questions that we have, we will not uh, be triggered by them, but that we would just simply wait upon the Lord, give it time, think it through, and we won't react. I pray for that kind of peace to be here this morning. Forgive us, Lord, of our sins. Cleanse us by the blood of Jesus. We trust in the filling of your spirit. And you would wash this house, cleanse this house, but fill this house. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd bind the work of the enemy of our soul. He'd have no place here. And you would receive all the glory, not some of it, all the glory. For the communication of these truths can only be understood by your spirit alone. We ask for this grace. All glory, and power, and forever only belongs to you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, in response to this phrase that it closes in chapter thirteen with, saying, "Let him who has wisdom calculate the number of the name," there's been various perspectives regarding what exactly is this calculation. Some people have tried to suggest that it was that the answer to the puzzling question lies within a discipline that's called gematria or gematria, however you say it. And it involves calculating the number of values of the letters of the person's name or the, or the uh, titles in order to somehow discern the identity of the person and uh, to kind of come to a conclusion about who they are. And in this case, you can discern, so they argue, the Antichrist. And as a consequence of using this gematria various historical figures from like Caesar Nero all the way up until modern times of Adolf Hitler, Various historical people have come about, and they calculate their name, and guess what? In the calculation of their name, using a numerical value for each letter of their name, they they prove through this gematria that actually these guys are 666, and therefore they are the Antichrist. Well, certainly they're of the spirit of the Antichrist, but whether or not he's the last day's Antichrist, seeing how they've died, I can pretty much say that they are not the Antichrist in the context that we're discussing him. But I also think it's important to acknowledge that these calculations are sometimes very speculative, and sometimes they can be manipulated. There's an old saying that says, figures don't lie, but liars sure do know how to figure. (laughs) And I tend not to lean too much upon them. And maybe that's because of my ignorance, but I'm okay with that. But another perspective, including my own, suggests that the understanding of the number of his name involves delving into the language itself. For instance, the Greek word stizo, which means to stick or to prick, It serves as the root word for the number 666, which in the Greek, you have a verbal meaning behind the numbers. Not in English, but in Greek, you do. And the root word there is to stick or to prick, and it implies something maybe inserted into the body, possibly stuck or pricked into, as the text says, the back of the right hand or the forehead. And thus, when considering the advancements in technologies that we did in great detail, and I'm not going to do it again this morning... You'll have to listen to those studies in Revelation 13. But when we consider those advancements, such as microchip technologies, uh, RFID, which is a little dated now, even Elon Musk's Neuralink, which just got approved, by the way, that allows them to put a microchip connected to your brain, which now all of a sudden opens up endless possibilities for the reasons that they're able to do this, can give you downloadable, downloadable information at the will. No more study. <laughs> No more long hours drinking coffee or vibrain in college. Remember that? That worked wonderfully, didn't it? Oh, sweet Lord. But while these theories hold interest upon uh, when you look at, the, look at them in and of themselves, they often tend to overlook the broader theme that's presented to us in the scripture itself. In our previous study, as I already mentioned, part one of the study, we explored the biblical accounts, shedding light upon Satan's endurance throughout history where he has an enduring theme trying to represent a certain concept unto man, a certain agenda with man that he's had from the very beginning of time. We observed his desire how to influence them and mark humanity, tracing all the way back to the, to the Garden of Eden. And even coming into Genesis in chapter six, right after Genesis three in the Garden of Eden, coming into Genesis chapter six, where the fallen angels are procreating with man. You say, but Ben, that is nuts. I know, that's crazy, Mm mm-hmm, that's weird, yes, but don't tell me that's not what the Bible's saying, it is crazy, and you can reject the Bible, and I completely support your right to be wrong in that, you can reject the Bible, but don't tell me that's not what the Bible is saying, because it is. And so what Genesis 6 reveals to us is this uh, this unholy union driven by the allure of forbidden knowledge, and it resulted in the corruption and the wickedness. Ultimately, that was the basis of the decision for God to flood the earth. It wasn't that God just says, "Hey, you know, I'm just kind of irritated today, so I'm going to flood the earth, you jerks. No, there's a reason. There's something building up to this conclusion. And to say it another way, what we have to realize is that the radical actions in Scripture of God himself to flood the earth or, on the other hand, to eradicate the populations in the land of Canaan. The reason God does this, for the lack of a better term, is this demonic interbreeding with man. And I understand the subtleties of the language, but that's another story. Something weird is happening on planet Earth. Something weird happened that ancient histories, you're talking Mesopotamian, Hebrew for sure. You're talking about the uh, Egyptian talks about this. You're talking about the more modern versions of Roman and Greek history. They all talk about these events taking place upon planet Earth. It was just mythology. Well, it's interesting how they have all the same mythology. And the fallen ones, so we see, they're trying to corrupt the DNA of man through whom the Messiah would come. And again, we tried to establish this last week, because the Messiah would come through man, and it had already been prophesied in Genesis 3 that the Messiah would come through the woman, the seed of the woman, and he would crush the serpent's head. And so the theory goes that by introducing this corrupt bloodline, so the thought goes that Satan was seeking, number one, to hinder God's redemptive plan for humanity, and number two, to keep his own head from being crushed. Pretty good motivation. (laughs) I don't want my head to be crushed. Let's wipe man out before he can do that. And if we consider God's plan from the foundation of the world, as the Bible repeatedly emphasizes, we can see that it revolved around the offering of a perfect blood through a perfect person placed upon a cross or an altar. And so knowing this, I think it becomes clear that the devil's strategy for for victory was simple. Corrupt the perfect bloodline of man. And last week, we examined the significance of this forbidden knowledge that was offered in Genesis 3 to Eve its deceptive nature and the resulting consequences. We discovered a connection between Nimrod in Genesis in chapter 10 and then going on into chapter 11 with the building of the Tower of Babel. Nimrod was a rebellious character and the connection that he had with the, with the giants that were on the earth that the Bible mentions in Genesis in chapter 6. You know, you say this today, and you say, well, there's giants on the earth and people say, you're crazy. I am, but not for those reasons. <laughs> but the fact is, Genesis in chapter 10, verse 8, it says about Nimrod after the flood, it says Nimrod began to be a gibberim. He began to be a mighty man upon the earth. I mean, how do you do that? This wasn't something that Nimrod naturally was. Something happened to him. He began to be a gibberim. Nimrod was transformed into something that he naturally was not. And then the text tells us that he stood in defiance. It, it, the, the English is very soft. It says he stood before the Lord, but that's not the idea. He stood in defiance of the living God. He stood toe to toe and looked him in the face. This man who was a hunter of the souls of men, and from that perspective, he began to have this insight and brilliance to build the Tower of Babel under the heavens, and again, we talked about that. It, it's more than just like really, really tall building. It's the idea that I'm intentionally going to replicate something that took place in our past. I'm going to ascend to the most high God. And essentially, he was mirroring Lucifer's rebellion. In Isaiah chapter 14, it talks about this, where Lucifer speaks and he says, I will ascend into the heavens. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high God. And this knowledge was given to Nimrod So it appears, after he began to be a gibberim. Because after he began to be a gibberim, he suddenly had this unction and this power and this insight to do something, to build the Tower of Babel, to stand in defiance of the presence of the living God, and he began to be a gibberim. And thus, these accounts caution us, so we found, against accessing this forbidden knowledge and attempting to surpass the boundaries that God has put upon us. And they serve as reminders of the dangers inherent in these pursuits. And they demonstrate that, as opposed to contrary popular belief, that God's intervention, which is often seen as his cruelty and his unkindness, it's not cruel. It's not unkind. But it's God's attempt of protecting humanity from the path that Lucifer, the enlightened one, is trying to lead man down. And so God takes a radical action to deal with something really weird was happening on the earth. And he did this several times. But unfortunately, the concept of the Mark of the Beast, as we just read about it, is often approached from a perspective of trying to identify a specific event or a physical manifestation in the future whereby we can discern who the Antichrist is going to be. But I think it's important to consider the broader spiritual purpose behind Satan's agenda in marking humanity in the first place. Unless you understand that, you're gonna to come to the wrong conclusion at the end. You're gonna think that all these events just kind of randomly took place in the Bible. Oh, go out and wipe out the Canaanites. Oh, now I'm gonna flood the earth. Now I'm gonna wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. Just because, really? That's the God you serve? Capricious, nonsensical, illogical, irrational? Or it could be that that's a description of us. <laughs> Interpreting God through our own hearts. Who knows? But God has always, Satan has always tried to corrupt mankind. Not just spiritually, but physically. And he did it subtly with the promise that you too can become a gibberim, You too can become a mighty man upon this earth. But something has to transform in you. You have to come to an enlightenment. Genesis 3. You too can be like the most high God. And Satan... Satan tripped himself up with this lie. And he bred that lie into mankind, and we've believed him ever since. And that's why in the Gospels it tells us in Romans that you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not an open sesame magic chant you do. It's your acknowledging that the lie in Genesis 3 is exactly that, a bunch of baloney. And here's one God, and it ain't me. When a man comes to that conclusion... He's on the right path. The fact is, you're not going to become God. I can't become God. This UFO phenomena, which, you know, we always said, you know, those people are whack jobs. And there's a lot of whack jobs in that circles. But it's demonic. And the reality is this, you know, you have guys like Barack Obama. (laughs) Sorry, just that acid reflux always comes up at that moment. But he comes out here just a few months ago, and he's like, ah, yeah, that's actually real. Interesting. But they're not UFOs. They're not little green Martians from other planets. They're not. It's physically impossible to travel with light speed for thousands of years and to show up and say, hey, we just showed up. You know, they're having babies all the way along in the spaceship, and they're dying and burying, and it's just not going to happen. But the UFO phenomena is, and their connection to the DNA modifications, it's demonic. It's the same thing that Genesis 6 was talking about. It's the same spirit that's always been here. And therefore, I propose that the, here this morning that the mark involves an insidious manipulation of man in some way, a twisted attempt to recreate the forbidden union that spawned the Nephilim in Genesis 6 and by deceiving humanity with the allure of supernatural powers immortality life satan seeks to offer an escape from the consequences faced by the fallen angels who dared to tamper with god's creation i mean we did that in genesis 6 we're not going to get thrown in prison again and so we got to find a way for man and give him the information for man to do the dirty work for us that's a possibility it's likely. They're not stupid. And this malevolent scheme, as I see it, it aims to transform mankind once again into a grotesque hybrid, strained from the natural order established by God. I mean, you look at this UFO thing, they're always interested in sex, right? What's that about? What's going on there? And the mark of the beast comes in a sinister gateway promising superhuman abilities while entangling humanity, as the book of Revelation says, in eternal damnation. Those who receive the mark. So these Nephilim embodied corruption. These hybrid, the sons of God, went into the daughters of men and created the mighty men of old. And all the histories of mankind have these legends, which are usually based in a grain of truth, of these half-God, half-men upon this earth. The Bible talks about David and Goliath. There he is. The Bible talks about Og, the guy's 12 feet tall. You say, well, I don't believe that. Fine. But that's what the Bible says. And these Nephilim marked a significant departure from God's original plan. And they initiated a cycle of corruption and wickedness that Satan exploited through man's vulnerability, through a man's innate yearning for power, for knowledge, man's yearning for transcendence. And so that through these deceptive practices, this forbidden knowledge and false worship, Satan sought and he seeks to lead mankind away from the worship of the true and the living God. And thus I would suggest that the mark of the beast as described in the book of Revelation represents the culmination, and hear that word, it's the culmination of Satan's ongoing agenda. And we have to understand it from the perspective first and foremost in that way. Lest we invent new ideas that, though they're clever and interesting, they fail to grasp the consistent pattern portrayed in Scripture of what Satan is trying to do. Well, we're going to calculate the number of his name, but you don't take it into the context of everything that he's been trying to do from the beginning. And so while the mark does symbolize the allegiance to Satan, his system of deception, opposing the worship of the one and true living God, I agree with that, I would suggest to you it very well may have a very real physical component beyond the mere symbol. In fact, in chapter 9, it says those people who take the mark, they start having a physical reaction to it. These boils and sores start appearing all over their body. Something is taking place in the body because of this mark. Interesting. I don't have time to get into this morning, which we have in part in previous studies, but consider synthetic biology. Just, Just Google it, synthetic biology that will blow your mind consider ai technology this got neuralink with with elon musk consider these things the syncretizing of man and machine this is all a reality it's been happening at light speed in just the last few months ai is going to take over and i haven't quite put together the study yet but i think it's very likely that ai is the antichrist because at least he tells me see ai is going to come along and solve cancer so i think It'll solve all sorts of diseases, paralysis. It'll give all the answers to everything. And why hasn't God done this? AI did it. So I have Yuval Harari coming along saying that the AI is going to create a Bible that we can all worship. We can all listen to finally. Yuval Harari is like the prophet of the World Economic Forum with Klaus Schwab. The guy is freaky scary. He's a very scary man. The things he says, wanting to eliminate. These guys are not your friends. They literally want to cull the people, C-U-L-L, the people upon this earth. And all these things, they're all coming together at the same time. We could go into detail on that. But there's something going on with this number of this man. 666, 6 being the number of man, repeated three times, that's the number of God. It's the deception that man himself is God. Yet we know from Revelation 13, the power behind it is the false trinity, where in the true trinity, you have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The false trinity, you have Lucifer playing the part of the Father, the Antichrist playing the part of Jesus Christ, and the false prophet, the second beast there, playing the part of the Holy Spirit. You have this false trinity, but this false trinity deceives man that he himself is God, 666. There's all sorts of those things going on. Those of you that are familiar with the biblical language. And because of that, all this requires us to think a little bit more deeply, which is something sometimes we're not very good at in a quick, fast-paced culture. You see, the battle between good and evil has been raging throughout history. It's a fundamental aspect of the cosmic struggle between God and Satan. And unless you understand this, what's going on in the scripture, it's move, counter-move, move, Move, counter-move. It's a cosmic chess match. So that what happened in Genesis in chapter 3, Satan comes in, deceives mankind. That was his move. So God comes in and says, counter move. The woman, the seed of the woman, she's going to have a baby and he's going to crush your head. He's going to crush my head? That was the counter move. Guess what? I'm going to counter move your counter move. And he moves forward and he says, how about Genesis 6? I'm going to raise up my own seed. And one thing leads to the next, to the next, to the next. And it goes all the way down like this through scripture. It's move counter-move, move, move, counter-move. And yet we look at it as this kind of like random kind of events. It's like, oh, look, Nephilim. Oh, look, seed of the woman. Oh, look, flood. They're all connected. There's one battle, one thing going on, a vein right through Scripture. And when we examine it, we discover that Satan has always been seeking to imitate and to counterfeit everything that belongs to God. Right from the beginning, we witness Satan's attempt to distort and corrupt God's plan by deceiving man. And just as God created the world perfect, Satan comes in, he introduces sin. God creates a covenant people. Satan successfully leads them astray. God does miracles in Pharaoh's court. Janus and Jambres come in. They replicate those actions and create confusion among the people of God. In the same manner, the Antichrist himself as prophesied in scripture, will mimic Christ. And he deceives the people into following him. He performs counterfeit signs and miracles. And his purpose in doing this is to attempt to lead the people of God away into a path of lies and deception, false teachings, in order to distort the image of God that was placed within humanity and draws many people away from the path of life. And as I began thinking about this, the foundation, if you will, of the false house that he's trying to build, the false house would would be that which is within each and every man, it lies in the realm of spiritual deception, encompassing false teachings, counterfeit miracles, a web of lies. The tangible manifestation of this false house is found in our physical bodies of the individuals themselves. But it follows this progression. First, the spiritual then the physical. And what do you mean? Once the lies are embraced and believed, man becomes susceptible to offering his body to what he has chosen to believe. But it's crucial to note that the surrendering of his body to this mark is a conscious choice. Once the choice is made, the construction of the house begins. His body will not change until he makes a choice. And the man of his own free will willingly accepts the mark of the beast. I mean, it's offering me so many things that God has never done for me. And this mark in accordance with the Satan's deceptive pattern, it entices with promises of knowledge, life, abundance, health, and wealth. And you know, if that's the only reason that you serve God, you'll serve the devil. God created our body. He didn't create us to die, but here we are. And the fact is, the gospel (laughs) tells me that He'll give me a new body. And the decision to accept the mark is rooted in the beliefs that man has chosen to embrace. The mark itself serves, I would suggest, a physical representation of a spiritual belief. And once the mark is received, It forever transforms the individual. And I say that word carefully, forever transforms the individual into something that God never intended. What happened to those, according to the book of Revelation, who received the mark? They are destined to now go to hell that was prepared for the devil and his angels. Kind of fierce, isn't it? Unless it's consistent with all the other fierce judgments that we see in Scripture unless it's consistent. And I'd suggest to you that it is if you give me a minute. I believe that understanding Genesis 6, where the sons of God went into the daughters of men, is crucial for comprehending the real conflict that's depicted throughout the rest of the scriptures. Now, Paul the Apostle in Ephesians 3.10, he tells us that the purpose of the gospel is that we become a witness to who? To the heavenly realm. What are you talking about? I thought it was that we die and we go to heaven. We do. Fringe benefit. But the purpose of the gospel is there is a conflict, a testimony against the heavenly powers. Our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, spiritual wickednesses in high places, Ephesians 6. It's all over the place. There's a real conflict going on that God has placed man into the course of history to play our part, And because Satan tried to trip us up from playing our part, God redeems mankind so man can play his part. (laughs) And it's, as I said, a cosmic chess match, move and counter move between the Most High God, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and the fallen ones. And some of you have never heard this before and I don't mean to be insulting, but I'm going to say it because I'm really good at doing that. You don't read your Bible. You already know that, though. And number two, you don't go to a Bible-teaching church, but you already know that as well. (laughs) But if you understand the first move, you can then understand the rest because the rest of it is move, counter-move according to the same narrative that started at the beginning. Crush the serpent's head, Oh, yeah? Well, I'm going to do this. Oh, yeah? Well, then I'm going to do this. And that follows all the way through. I talked about it in more detail here this morning in the prayer meeting, but not this. I don't have time for it right now. And thus, the text explicitly states, the Nephilim in Genesis 6-4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. Key phrase, and also. The Nephilim were on the earth during the days of the flood, but after the flood, they are also here. Well, the Nephilim came together from the sons of God coming to the daughters of men and they also that's how they were created then they also came afterwards presumably they did it again and it's evident that they attempted the same strategy more than once it was a repeated pattern the nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards and the consequence of their unholy unions were severe as evidenced by the great flood that occurred in response countermove and in fact, when God completely judged the world, a people, or a city, it was due to his exact reason, this exact reason. And I propose that this same reason will be the cause for his coming again in future judgment. Every time in the Bible, God has these severe judgments, it is for the exact same reason. He is not capricious, He's caring, He has to remedy the situation. Now, consider the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We read in the book of Jude that they pursued strange flesh and left their heavenly estate. The fallen angels who left their original position and engaged in inappropriate human relations, like the UFOs coming into people and all that stuff, right? And yet Sodom and Gomorrah was doing something similar, as the text says. And hear this. Because of those statements in Jude, it demonstrates, I think, that the angels' actions, remember the angels came in to Lot's house, and the men of the city said, let's have sex with them? The eight, that's in Genesis uh, 18 and 19 there, 19. The angels' actions and the resulting attraction of the men in the city were not solely about homosexuality, but rather it was an inclination towards forbidden and corrupt practices, plain speak. They were innately attracted to having intercourse with angelic beings. (laughs) And the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah reveals the righteous and loving nature of the Most High God. I told a guy years ago, I said, if he's evil, you'd be a fool to rebel against him. If God's that way, I'm not going to serve him. Yeah, he's God. And he brings about a similar devastation out of necessity for what likewise transpired during the flood. And I think it's illogical to conclude that God is capricious, he's a genocidal being. No, he's not. But there's something else going on. You see, so many people say, well, God's all loving, so they ignore those passages. How do you reconcile those passages with the loving God? Unless he did something out of necessity because there were no longer any other options. It got so evil. Matthew 24 says the last days are gonna be like the days of Noah. Matthew 24 says it's gonna get so evil that those days must be shortened. How do you reconcile that? So they just ignore the Bible and say, we're Christians, we are Christians, but you're ignoring the Bible. (laughs) And because he loves you, he's using idiots like me. Now you criticize me you you say you're a dork and you got sandals on. We don't take you seriously. I do have sandals on. I do have sandals on. I bathed <laughs> this morning. I uh, hey look, I do it every week whether I need it or not. <laughs> Fine. But I think only a truly loving person tells you the truth. I don't hate any of you. Something else is going on. This is the exception, not the rule. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. (laughs) Something was going on. And likewise, as we delve into the Israelites' journey into the Promised Land, we confront the presence of the Nephilim in numerous tribes, such as the Rephaim, the Anakim, the Zuzamim, there's the Emim. There's something like 20 different Nephilim tribes in the land of Canaan. And their occupation of the land, I would suggest to you, how did they get there? It serves along the narrative of move, counter-move. Move, move counter-move. God comes to Abraham in Genesis in chapter 12 and says, guess what? Your seed is going to bless all the nations of the earth. And you're going to go into the promised land. That's chapter 12 and 15 talks about this. You're going to go into the promised land. devil goes, oh, really? Well, guess what? We're going to go into the promised land. Counter-move. It's move, counter-move in this cosmic chess match. And Satan aware of God's promise to give the land to Israel as a place from where the Messiah, who would crush their head, would be born and save mankind, the devil decides to strategically populate the land of Israel with the Nephilim for when the Israelites come. Have you ever wondered the purpose behind God sending the nation of Israel to Egypt for 400 years? Well, there's several reasons But for our immediate purpose, it serves twofold purpose. Number one, to separate them from the corruption spreading in Canaan. And number two, to mold them into a unified nation. The the pollution already started in Canaan. God says, oh, that thing's got to run its course. And it's going to take 400 years for it to be completely corrupt. So me as a righteous judge can eradicate it. And the Most High God, knowing that he would lead his chosen people into that land, prepared them for the formidable challenge that they're going to face. So they're in Egypt for 400 years, but do you ever wonder why God repeatedly hardened Pharaoh's heart? He did so in the hope that the children of Israel would witness his power and his faithfulness. And this action was meant to strengthen their faith and the resolve as they approached the promised land. But you guys know the story. When the spies were sent in, when they reported the presence of the giants, the Israelites succumbed to fear. And they said, we're not going in there. There's giants in the land. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. That's how big they were. These guys are huge. I think there's some exaggeration there. But they're saying these guys are massive. We can't go in there. They just got done going through the 10 plagues in Egypt. They just got done seeing Pharaoh judged by God. They just got done seeing the Red Sea part. But that was preparing them, yet when they went into the promised land, it was nothing compared to what they just went through. The trial was so big and fearful. And when that pivotal moment happened and they decided not to obey God and to go into the promised land, which God had been preparing them for for 400 years, that date was a date in history that marked them as a rebellious people. That date was the 9th of Av, where they fell back in an evil heart of unbelief, as Hebrews says. And the 9th of Av subsequently, throughout the history of the Jewish people, throughout all of their generations, became a day of calamity and mourning. Do you realize the first and and the second temple were both destroyed on guess what date? The 9th of Av. The Jews were expelled from England and Spain on guess what date? I mean, how did they coordinate that one? The 9th of Av. Auschwitz, the transports to Auschwitz began on the 9th of Av. And you see this repeated pattern in Israel's history. And God, disappointed by their lack of faith for not entering into Canaan, pronounced a curse on the nation, designating the 9th of Av as a day of mourning. So Israel goes in and spends 40 more years in the wilderness until that generation of unbelief dies off. Joshua and Caleb, the old guys now, 80 years old. And when they're ready to go into the promised land and remove the giants from the land, what is the mandate that the Most High God gives to Joshua and Caleb and the rest of Israel for when they go in? What does he tell them they must do? He says, take them all out. Kill them all. Burn Everything, okay? That's genocide. It's genocide. There's no way around it. But hear this. If you try to understand this apart from the conflict we have just explained, you'll begin to accuse God of horrible things. But something really weird happened on earth. And this was the exception, not the rule because God consistently judged the same thing in the same way. There's many who don't understand the cosmic war or the true nature of the Nephilim. Some people have mistakenly branded the Nephilim as just really bad sinful men. But if they were just really bad sinful men, which there's no linguistic linguistic basis for saying that, but there was other really bad sinful men in the Bible You ever heard of the Ninevites? You know what the Ninevites did to people? They would take people alive, alive, and they would take a knife and begin to cut the skin off their body. They would then take that skin and make furniture for their homes. The Ninevites were the most vicious, cruel people in the history of mankind. And the wicked things they committed, the horrific acts, are beyond imagination. Yet the book of Jonah, don't know if you've read it. It's a well of a story. You'll love it. (laughs) But when Jonah goes in and preaches to the Nidavites, he didn't want to because he wanted God's judgment to happen. (laughs) Because he knew if he told them to repent, God is gracious and he would forgive them. And he preached to them reluctantly. God had a way of twisting his arm on that one. And they turned from their ways and found mercy. What? The Ninevites found mercy? And it's a reminder of God's grace that even the darkest souls can find redemption and forgiveness. What he did in these occasions were all for the same reason. What do you see in the promised land? What? There's no repentance. What do you see in Sodom and Gomorrah? No repentance. What do you see in the flood? No repentance. Therefore, no grace, no mercy. In the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the conquest of Canaan, nothing. Because why? Why is this not taking place? One reason, the Nephilim are there. (laughs) And that's the key to the conflict in scripture. Move and counter move. Jesus said, just like in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the time of the coming of the Son of Man. Fast forward then to the book of Revelation, where we discover four key aspects in the book of Revelation regarding the mark of the beast. Number one, without this mark, you can't buy or sell anything. It's a digital currency that you're fed now. That was a pun. I don't know if any of you are keeping up on the banking news. Not many people do, but (laughs) what's in Banking USA today? Um, But it's a digital currency, and without this mark that you stick or prick into the back of the right hand of the forward, you cannot buy or sell anything. But let's dive a little deeper. The second criterion, which often puzzle people, and I alluded to, It mentions something intriguing. Those who bear the mark will experience grievous sores upon their body. It's in uh, chapter 9, isn't it? It's a head-scratcher, right? Why would the mark cause such affliction on people's human bodies? Something physical is happening to the people's bodies because of the mark. Moving on to the third criterion. We're warned that those who embrace the mark will end up in the lake of fire alongside Satan and his angels. Notice, unlike the Ninevites, unlike the Ninevites, there's no grace, there's no mercy for those who take the mark. Because the mark involves something else. And finally, the fourth criterion, it paints the grimmest of pictures. It says, in those days, when people receive this mark, people will desperately seek death and they won't be able to find it. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the time of the coming of the Son of Man. In the days of Noah, men lived exceptionally long lives. They're going to want to die, but they can't. They were promised life and they got it, but it was not the life they wanted. And in my view, the mark of the beast carries severe judgment, just as we see in past events like the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the conquest of Canaan. It's a judgment devoid of grace and mercy. If one takes the mark, he becomes a race of unredeemable man, not unlike the Nephilim, the seed of the serpent. And this is why the judgment depicted in the book of Revelation mirrors the severity we witness in the times of Noah's flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the conquest of the promised land. It's an exclusive judgment for these types of situations because this mark basically, evidently transforms you into something that is no longer the unadulterated creation of God Almighty. But it's a willful, volitional choice. And thus, my suggestion, and I don't have time to even get into it, is that it also likely involves mass demonic possession. As the Christian becomes a Christian because he receives the deposit, Ephesians 1, right? Verse 13, of the Holy Spirit. We've received the person of the Holy Spirit to live within us. Satan replicates it, countermove, and they receive the deposit of an evil spirit. And the last days will be known for mass, de- but people won't accidentally get, it'll be conscious choices that they have rejected truth and chosen to believe a lie. You know, a lot of people reject truth because it makes them feel uncomfortable. Now, unless you have a sore back, which Jeff does. He's like, man, I'm uncomfortable here this morning. People are looking at Jeff. Why is Jeff squirming this morning? He threw his back out, and he's here. Good job. (laughs) He's like, man, I got to stand up. You can go ahead and stand up. But people... Reject truth because it makes them feel uncomfortable. I mean, you know, you're really not going to grow in your walk with the Lord until you're okay with not knowing everything. <laughs> it's like, okay, I know a little bit. Pastor Tom Horn, who I don't know much about, but he suggests that transhumanism, which is a real thing going on today, the merging of humanity and technology, It'll present a secular alternative to salvation. The idea, appealing to people's diverse backgrounds, promises salvation through advanced technologies, not unlike um, the, the, the Yuval Harari. It promises salvation through advanced technology rather than through God Almighty. So consider this. What if there existed technology capable of curing every disease? What if there was a technology that could actually help you and finally figure out what's jacked up in your body? Restore your vision. Although we can do kind of the eye surgery today. My father got his done, and he has 20-20 vision. And I'm sitting back, and I'm going, holy cow, I cannot. I was trying to thread a needle last night. It was fun. <laughs> it took me a good 20 minutes to get the stupid piece of thread through that little stupid hole. I finally put my iPad open, and I put the camera and I put it behind the camera and magnified it. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Try to zoom in on it. And I love the fact that we have medicine that can heal things. But imagine all of a sudden you're crippled and you could walk again. You could reverse the signs of aging. You don't have to take those weird you know, $150 per packet powders and put them under your tongue. Not that I'm doing that. <laughs> It could be. What if you could extend your lifespan significantly? What if you, with Neuralink, which is the whole thing they're talking about, you instantly, at your will, have all knowledge? You're a student in school. You can be a complete idiot now. You don't know anything. You're an idiot, but you're connected to the internet with your brain, and you just know how to work that calculus cohesion. The calculus is now easy for you. You don't understand it, but you do it. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? You possess all knowledge, but actually that knowledge possesses you. Ooh, look at the spirit behind it. It's demon possession. It's paving the way for another power to control you. But it initially gives you a sense of power because by that, it tricks you to yield to it. This is how demonic possession works. But it's now a principle I suggest is going to be seen in technology. You yield to the power because of the power it can give you. And then once you yield to it, it then controls you. Imagine instantly becoming an expert in any field that captivates you. Would you say that maybe is like a godlike status? You'll know everything, you'll be like God. And by the way, humans created AI, so humans created God. Therefore, humans must be God. Therefore, the number must be six. 6, 6, man is trinity. Man is God. But Revelation 13 says, no, you don't understand. He's going to trick you to thinking that, but the power behind it is going to be the devil, the antichrist, and the false prophet, the false trinity. But you'll think it's you. And man creates something through his own pride, but it really wasn't the genius that he received of himself. Someone else gave him that genius. He created something, convinced himself that he was God, And then that something, after he yielded to it, now controls him. And if humans were connected to computers, as Elon Musk envisions with Neuralink, everyone, which has just been approved, I think I already told you that, everyone would possess the same knowledge. No one would be superior or richer than another. It would eliminate the need for conflict, theft, and hunger. The distinctions of wealth and poverty would presumably vanish. In other words, it would kind of resemble heaven. And it seems that's exactly what the underlying intention is. Not be from Elon Musk, but from the powers that be. And this seems to be what's being offered, a counterfeit. And it's going to work. It's actually going to work. Dint, dint, dint down for a season. (laughs) And Adolf Hitler was, was powerful for a season. It's the same spirit. And so considering that Christ conquered death to offer us eternal life and promised new bodies upon his return for an eternity with him, the Antichrist as described in the book of Revelation will likely offer a counterfeit solution. And the counterfeit will mimic immortality and health, claiming to have conquered death and positioning himself as a false god. I was wounded and yet I lived, so Revelation 13 says. And he'll be worshipped, because he replicated, presumably, what Jesus did, who died and rose again. Well, I died and rose again. But he didn't. It'll be AI raising him from the dead. And it'll be worship because he propo- what he proposes will actually be a medical miracle. And as opposed to these sociopaths that are using medicine to cull, C-U-L-L, mankind, he will discover the fount of life. And he will cure mankind. Long story short, as I said, I believe the last days will be known for mass demonic possession. It's going to be a manipulation of man unlike anything we've ever seen. So we were created in the image of God. We are created and we were given dominion upon the earth. Jesus then comes to the earth as one of us because Christ And what he did on the cross becomes a qualification for us for redemption. And we're also told in Scripture that we're not just heirs with Christ, but we're joint heirs or co-heirs with Christ. We're going to rule and reign with him. We're told in Scripture that there's a lot more to our humanity than the weaknesses that the global elite try to highlight. You carbon-based, you know, energy sucker. (laughs) But if we ever become something other than what god intended us to be we'll not only lose that dominion which is the enemy's plan but like the nephilim we become irredeemable but the fact is and i close god in his love and mercy sent his son jesus christ to redeem us from sin and offer eternal life and through faith in christ we find forgiveness we find restoration we find the true fulfillment of our humanity You were not created to be enslaved by the scheme of an enemy or to be marked by corruption. You and I were created to know the love of your creator and to walk in righteousness and freedom and to fulfill the purposes that God had intended from the beginning for your life. And through Jesus and Christ alone, you and I can experience this renewed relationship with God, receiving his grace, his forgiveness, even for the Ninevites. We can be empowered by his Holy Spirit, who as opposed to bringing us into bondage will bring us into the liberty and the freedom of the sons of God. And he'll give your life a purpose, a joy, and probably more significant, eternal significance. For his prayer to us was, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I tried to take this as slowly as I could because I knew it was complicated, and at that, I know that it probably overwhelmed, particularly for those that weren't here last week. But I also know that you are a God that can get through all of those complexities, and you can make something that doesn't make sense make sense. And so, God, I ask for your grace in this. I pray for your covering. I pray that your victory would be had And that we wouldn't become people focused upon the enemy, but we'd be aware of it. We'd be focused upon our King, who promises as we keep our eyes upon Him, you will navigate us and direct us around all the schemes of the enemy. And so, Lord, that being said, a few of us have to say, God, I'm sorry for allowing that garbage in my life. Would you please forgive me? And would you please wash me and take away all the unrighteousness for me stupidly, be honest, allowing that into my life. Please forgive me. And if your blood doesn't work now, it's never worked. It works. And so God, do your work. Cleanse us and forgive us. But beyond that, Lord, would you fill us with your spirit so that we could begin to walk the life you've called us to live. There's a remedy for sin. It was at Calvary's cross. Thank you for the redemption. Let us not get trapped up in the schemes of the enemy. Let us have liberty and freedom as the sons of God. We pray for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.